in communion today. Really fine job, and as well as our worship team. Really, really good job today. Really appreciate it very much. So, in 1991, there was a storm that happened off the coast of New England and here in the Middle Atlantic states. That at that time, it was not named. It later became, we got, am I working here? Great. It later became known as the 1991 perfect storm. A collision of a nor'easter coming down out of Canada that happened with a Hurricane Grace moving up the Atlantic coast. They said that at the time, winds of 75 miles an hour but it also combined with record waves off the coast of Halifax. One buoy measured 100-foot waves at one time. And in the midst of that was a boat, the Andrea Gale, I believe is the correct name. You might know this storm because of the movie that came out in 2000 with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, The Perfect Storm, that chronicled it to some degree or another since the the boat or any of the passengers were never found. A perfect storm after that became more typical and more common in our language and our use here in the States and all. And a perfect storm is any expression that describes an event where a rare combination of circumstances will aggravate a, a situation drastically. All right? So did you get that? An expression, it's, it's expressing any time when there is a rare combination of circumstances that will aggravate a situation drastically. But it goes on and says that this term is also used to describe an actual phenomenon that happens to occur in such a confluence resulting in an event of unusual magnitude. I think that this was the confluence of circumstances that resulted in something of unusual magnitude. I'm suggesting today that the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday over 2,000 years ago was that kind of thing where it brought together factors and circumstances and people and agendas and all of that to come together to result in an event of unusual magnitude, which was Christ and his death on the cross, and his eventual resurrection three days later. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 21, please. That's where we're going to start. We're also going to be in John a little bit, but Matthew 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. All right? I'm reading from the New American Standard. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what has spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments on the road, and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, John's gospel tells us a little bit in chapter 12 that Jesus comes to Jerusalem from, from Lazarus' home and that Jesus and his disciples had traveled approximately 17 miles from Jericho to Bethany. And that's about a 3,000-foot ascent and elevation between those towns. And then he arrives here today. And this is the only record of Jesus ever, ever using an animal. He... But this particular animal and the symbolism and the importance that he rode this animal on this occasion were huge. He was preparing to reenact the return of another king, King David, from 2 Samuel 19 and 20, where King David returns to Jerusalem as a king with peace and humility after Absalom's rebellion. And then also, he's reenacting the entrance of Solomon, into Jerusalem for his, when he becomes the king, out of 1 Kings. And on each of these occasions, there were kings who were riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Rulers rode donkeys in Israel during the times of peace. We see that in Judges 5 and 1 Kings 1. It was a sign that they were, they were there in humble service to the people, whereas a warrior would ride a horse. He's making a statement of a king of peace. But interestingly enough, the first mention of a donkey in Scripture is in Genesis 22, where there Abraham saddles a donkey. It's really interesting. Abraham saddles a donkey in Genesis 22 to take his one and only son to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. It's interesting that in that passage you know very few things but this. He saddled a donkey, he took a knife, he took fire, and he took his son. And Mount Moriah is the ancient name for Jerusalem. And there is another man riding a donkey for the sacrifice of one and only. Except for in this case, there will not be a substitute. In this case, there is nothing that's caught in the thicket. There is no ram. There is no animal. It is the one and only Son of God who is sacrificed on this occasion. This represents an appeal, you know, and also this thing about the donkey and coming in and asking to it. There is an old um, uh, custom that was brought, that Romans had adopted from other nations that they had conquered, and it was called Angera, Angaria. And it was the temporary procurement of resources on behalf of the greater cause. So, for instance, if a, Roman, if a Roman messenger came into town and needed a fresh horse, he could procure any horse that he found for the good of the cause and continue on. And so here you find a similar custom that's being acted out where the Lord needs it is all that's said. And whoever it was, whether it was the owner or just a bystander, released the donkey without question. What were the, the rare combination of circumstances 
I believe that we have to back up and flip over to John 11, please. We have to back up a little bit and go before the actual triumphal entry. And what we're going to do is, instead of looking at just those, that, that day, that Palm Sunday, and trying to understand what was happening there, we have to back up and look at a little bit broader perspective on the text. And when we find ourselves here in John 11 and 12, we're going to get a broader perspective, and we'll be able to see from this passage here some of the circumstances that existed as Christ came here into the city. Let me read John 11, verse 45, please. Many, therefore, the Jews had come to Mary, believing and beheld what he had done and believed in him. So what has just happened in the first part of chapter 11 is that Jesus has heard about his friend Lazarus who is sick and then and dying and eventually was dead. And so Christ now has said, let's go and be with him. They've come to Bethany. They have been with Lazarus. And Christ has healed him. Not only healed him, he didn't heal him. He brought him back from the dead. And there, as you can imagine, was a little bit of noise about that in the area. And so coming out of that, many, therefore, the Jews had come to Mary, verse 45, and beheld what had been done and believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Verse 51 says, Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one of the children of God who are into one, the children of God, who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness and to the city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will come? Will he not come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders to anyone who, who knew where he was that he should report it, that they might seize him. So there you have it. The passage reveals all the players, all the agendas represented here. For they're about to clash and create this perfect storm. First of all, let's look at the believers. The first group of people we see in the passage are the believers. Um, verse 45, we see it here. That many believed, it says, chapter 11, verse 45, many believed. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, again talk about that many, there, there, here we are with Mary and Martha and those of the house. They were believers also. And here in this passage, chapter 12, first part of it, Mary anoints Jesus' feet. And then finally you go to verse 11, and, be, and here even the, the chief priests and the Pharisees saying, there's a lot of people who are believing this guy. Even they acknowledge it. And finally, in 1242, we read it again. Nevertheless, we're skipping ahead. Nevertheless, many, 
Even other rulers believed in him. Even the rulers were beginning to believe in him. So we have one set of people, one set of circumstances, one set of agenda. These are the believers who have watched Christ and said, this guy might be the real deal. I believe that perhaps he's a Messiah. I think there was confusion about it. But the next ones were the curious. I'm going to call them the curious. Now, if you're old enough, you know who that is up there. Mrs. Kravitz, Gladys Kravitz, right? The curious were the gawkers. They were like Gladys Kravitz from the Bewitched TV show. They were always watching, always reporting and telling others for the sake of gossip and gain, especially the Pharisees. Here you are in verse 46 of chapter 11. And what does it say they did? They went away and told the Pharisees what had happened. In verse 56, it says they were seeking Jesus and saying to one another, is he going to show up? What do you think? There was this anticipation. And not because he was a Messiah, not because he was a prophet, but because it was a show. It was like, you know, like Bono is coming to town, and it's a free concert, and everyone wants to be there for people who still know who Bono is, all right? Do you think he's going to show up? Verse 9 in chapter 12 says it was a great multitude. And verse 18 in chapter 12 says, For this cause also the multitude went and met with him, because they were heard and he had, that he had performed this sign. They were looking for a show. They had no interest in who Jesus was or what he was about. Their interest was purely in the spectacle of who he was. What would he do next? waiting on the next confrontation between him and the Pharisees and and what might happen there. And their interest was just to be entertained. In chapter 12, verse 37, says that many of them, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Not believing in him. So we have two agendas, two people, two circumstances here together. We have the believers and Mrs. Kravitz. We also have the Pharisees. Their concern was so great that they considered, they came together to consider how to deal with him. Verse 48, chapter 11 there, says they got together and they said, if we let this go on, the Romans will come and take our place. Their real concern was not fi- about finding a Messiah. They weren't interested about anything he had to say. They were interested about the threat that he was to their way of life. They were interested in the threat that he was to their power, to their self-autonomy. Let's pause right there. I would venture to say that no one in this room wants to identify themselves as a Pharisee. But I would venture to say that the biggest problem we have with Christ is the same one the Pharisees have. That he threatens my autonomy. That he threatens that I don't get to do what I want to do anymore. That he threatens that I don't get to live my life the way I want to live my life. Having said this in a while, so it's time to say it again. This line right here represents faith in Christ. This line right here represents faith in Christ. On this side of the line, he requires nothing of no one. Nothing of no one. He asks men, women, and children to believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And when they do that, they step on this line. They say, I believe that Christ died for my sins. And I take that as the payment for my own sins so that I don't have to work any longer to do that. And that costs nothing. 
at all. You do not need to change. You do not need to talk different. You do not need to walk different. You do not need to cover up your tats. You don't have to cover up your past. Nothing at all. Because he accepts you just as you are. And he says, believe on me and ye shall have eternal life. Totally free. But on the other side of the line, right here, it costs you everything. And it's this side of the line that so many of us get stuck on and say, I'm uncomfortable with that. I like my wealth. I like my car. I like my house. I like my lifestyle. I like having two, three homes, getting to go do them. I like being able to do what I want to do and not worry about whether Frank needs a ride to the hospital or needs a meal. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in me. That right there makes you a Pharisee just like these guys were, except for you say you believe in Jesus and they didn't. Jesus is as much a threat to you as he was to these Pharisees. He's as much a threat to me. I worship an idol called comfort. And every day I struggle with that idol. That I want my day to go easy. I want things to come easy. I don't want any, I, I just don't want anything to happen. I want it to be comfortable and easy. That is my idol. That is the one that gets in the way of the lordship of Christ in my life every day, all day long. That's what I want. Each of us have those kind of idols. Each of us have something that Christ threatens in our life. On this side of the line, if you're professing Christ as your Savior and you say that you are a follower of His and a disciple of His, that means you are studying the Scripture. That means you're sharing, uh, talking to Jesus about other people. That means that you're in prayer. That means you're in relationship with other people in this church. That means you're in service, sacrificial service. Maybe not always in this church, but the people around you, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your family, at your work site, wherever you may be. It means all that and more because he says that to follow me, you must die to yourself. And then you kick in James, and James says that if you really believe that he died for you and that you owe him your life, your faith would demonstrate it by what you do and who you are. Therein is how the struggle the Pharisees had with Christ is a struggle that we have with Christ as well. That was not in the notes. That was bonus. You can pay at the door. So, in verse 57, they say, we'll seize Jesus. Later on, they say they will kill him. And then not only that, but his friends get caught up in this as well. And they're going to, in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, they are going to kill Lazarus also. So here we have three circumstances, three factors, three of the, of the factors in this perfect storm. Our next one are the Romans. And in this particular passage, there's not a lot said about them, but they're there, their presence is felt, and we know a lot about them. And that is only mentioned in verse 48, and it just says the real, the, 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 it, we just learn here that the real power brokers in Jerusalem and Judea are the Romans. And they're the only people that the Pharisees fear. They're the only ones that the Pharisees fear. Because if Jesus comes in and upsets the apple cart, then the, the Romans will come in and really mess things up. 
and they'll take away from us the very thing we treasure, which is our system and our power and our comfort. Pilate was known to be no lover of Jews. At one time, he sent his men, his guards, his soldiers into the the marketplace dressed as common people. And when they got in there, they undressed their their cloaks, pulled out their swords, and killed three to 5,000 people just because. The point was to establish fear and respect for the Roman sword. He had no problem with killing them. Matter of fact, he was too much a lover of killing them. And the fact that they were here in Passover, the thing he did not want was there to be trouble on Passover and and for it to threaten his power and his position from Rome. He was there to keep the peace and make sure nothing happened. He did not stay in Jerusalem as the throne, as the palace, as where his residence. He lived on the coast, and he came in specifically for this event because it was so troublesome, so problematic. And keep in mind that anyone who declared allegiance to any king other than Caesar was considered treason and worthy of death. Our next agenda is this, I call it the eternal. Perhaps there's a better name for it. But in verses 51 through 52, here we have it. That Jesus would die for the nations. It's prophesied. It's right there. Here it is, said in the text, that Jesus would die for the people and, and for the nations. And later on in chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus himself says that he will be lifted up and would draw all men to himself, speaking of his, his crucifixion. And in each of the Gospels leading up to this event, he is revealing more and more about himself, more about the deity, and more and more explaining about his oncoming um, death. Immediately following this here in John, he goes right into the upper room where he really lays this out and says, I am going to die. And so the eternal factor is at play here. And that is, this is about Jesus' death, and he's stepping in the room. We'll look at more his agenda in a moment. And then finally, the multitude. Again, not a great name maybe, but these are just the people. We see them in chapter 12, 12 through 15. On the next day, the great multitude had come to the feast, and they heard that Jesus was coming, and they took the branches of the palm trees, and they went out and met him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even in the king of Israel. And here are these, this multitude who's come out to welcome him. And there are this, this multitude had to have mixed ambitions, mixed understandings. Some probably were there seeking a real Messiah. Some were probably there seeking the prophesied Messiah from Zechariah 9, and there was others there who were not speaking, seeking a spiritual freedom, but they were seeking a national freedom for Jerusalem to be ruling a nation of free Jews and, and eventually going back to what was glory of King David and King Solomon. There were others there who were just simply looking to escape Roman power. And then finally, our poor disciples, my goodness, I, I have loved, always loved the quote from John 11, verse 6, when Jesus learns that Lazarus is dying, and he says, we're going back to Bethany. Well, you have to understand that he had just left the Jerusalem area where they had threatened to kill him. He's gone, he's re, he's gone into the safety of the distance, and now he says, hey, Lazarus is dying back where they just tried to kill me. Let's go back and take care of him. And they're like going, what? What? In verse 16, Thomas, I love him. He, he is just as honest as Peter. I'm not sure if I'm more like Peter or Thomas. And he said, okay, let's go. Let's just die right alongside of him. 
Here are the disciples just uncertain about what's happening. We know of the bewilderment they experience in the upper room as Jesus is explaining all this to them in John 12 and 13. And they're like going, that's not going to happen. You can't wash my feet. None of this is going to happen. We understand the bewilderment in the garden as the, as the guards take away Jesus and they pull out their swords to defend him and they're uncertain about why this is happening. We understand they're uncertain in their bewilderment as they abandon him completely and even deny him in the case of Peter. And then finally, they, just, they demonstrate just the epitome of a lack of understanding when it's reported that Jesus has been risen from the grave and they don't believe it. Matter of fact, it even says that, that in John, I believe it is, it says that afterwards that the disciples realized in verse 16 of chapter 12, this, the things, the, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had been done as these things, and these things had been done to him. Those are the elements, I believe, are in the perfect storm of the triumphant entry of Christ. As Pastor Steve said in our devotional that we have back there, as Pastor Steve in the devotional, the other factor just to include in this is that the population of this city had swollen five or six times more than it usually was. Some say it's into the thousands. Some say it's into the hundreds of thousands, perhaps even in the millions, were jammed in this city of approximately 300 acres. And in that vast mix of numbers of people pour in all these ingredients, all these factors come into play. Romans, who will not tolerate any other authority other than their own. Pharisees, who will go to all lengths to protect themselves and their position in that temple. Matthew 21 even says that they went to Jesus and says, calm the people down. Stop them from talking like this. Don't let them call you king. Because it will result badly. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If I told them to be quiet, the rocks would raise up and worship me. True believers were there that understood that Jesus was something, something special, Messiah or prophet. Nevertheless, they they followed him devoutedly. And then the multitude, just this mixture of people who would cheer him on Sunday and cheer him as crucifixion on Friday. And into this environment comes Jesus. He is like the match on gasoline. He'll take all the emotion, all the wonder, all the fear, the anger, the uncertainty, and he will ignite it simply by trotting into this ancient city on a donkey. And the crowds went before him saying, Hosanna, To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people's words come from praise of Psalm 118, 25, and 26. The Jews used this psalm at Passover as part of the great halal in the dedication, in the the Feast of Tabernacles in dedication. Hosanna transliterates the Hebrew word for save us now. And Son of David is absolutely messianic in its title, and it stresses the kingly role that the Messiah would play. And he comes in the name of the Lord is, is an equally important messianic title in Hosanna in the highest. It, it probably translates something like glory to God in the highest. 
in quoting all these passages and in saying all these things, they were declaring him as a Messiah and a king. And he was not turning that away. The deliberate preparation for a citywide reception, one, one commentator says it like this, the deliberate preparation for a citywide reception contrasts with all of Jesus' former approach to ministry. Before, he had deliberately not drawn attention to himself, but now he is prepared to do so. He had formerly withdrawn from the antagonistic hierarchy, but now he organized a parade that they would not miss. As our devotional says in the introduction to it, a line has been drawn in the sand. Jesus has arrived and it is no longer, he is no longer coy about his intention. He's no longer speaking in a parable. He has come in and declared himself as the true king. Pilate will later on ask him that, says, are you a king? Jesus didn't deny it. And in doing so, he has confronted every agenda, every people, every everything and all that existed there in in Jerusalem, and the perfect storm has hit. And all of history has been affected by it. It's Sunday of Holy Week, and Jesus has arrived and, and set into motion the events that would change history for all mankind. All of the Old Testament has been pointing to this week, to the events of this week. This week, as you reading your devotional, as you're reading these passages, I encourage you to find yourself in the story. And I encourage you to find where the story is pointing. The story is not about us. It is about Jesus, the Messiah, who has come into this space of time and place and history and declared himself as king and messiah who will willingly lay down his life in the course of just a few days after this event and give it up for the sacrifice of all mankind. Who has willingly come in and fulfilled the prophecies that went back to the very beginning of mankind in Genesis 3, where God promised that your seed will crush the head of the serpent And here is Jesus fulfilling that in thousands of years of prophecy into this space and time. And all of it, if you read the text as you go through these writings, all of it is always about the glory of God. This week, wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with it to understand what the, what the triumphant entry is about. You have to wrestle with it to understand the cross and the resurrection and how is it and why is it that a, good, that a perfect man, the Son of God, would come and die for you a bloody, horrible death and that that is glory? Why? Why is that glory? That's your assignment this week. Explore it. Find it. And in doing so, You'll come back next Sunday eager and ready to worship on Easter Sunday. Let's pray.